nationally syndicated Price of Business. I'm your host, Kevin Price, talking to you about you and your business. Always love having you on the program. Uh, long time uh, regular, regular, I can't talk all so David Dozer and a professor from uh, the uh, uh, San, uh, San Diego State University, uh, professor emeritus in journalism and author of a phenomenal book that uh, we first met uh, due to his book that he came on and talked about it. And, and uh, I'm going to let him uh, mention it again here in a moment, uh, plus his website. Uh, but we're not talking about media. We've had a long, long list of uh, interviews we've done. Uh, we come from very different ideological positions, but we uh, mutually respect uh, one another, even as we disagree. But frankly, in our core topic, David, we rarely disagree, which is free speech and the importance of a free press. And so on that fundamental issue, which, you know, every value in this country for Forever and uh, now it's been uh, a pretty huge war waged against us, against it that's bipartisan. I, I just continuously say I'm grateful that they don't agree on where the attack on free speech should happen, or we could see a serious eclipsing of our freedom in that area. But anyway, introduce your book real quickly and your website where people can get more information. And we've got a great topic for today lined up. You, you came up with a good one. Well, uh, the website is daviddozierbooks.com. Uh, last name is spelled D-O-Z-I-E-R. And it's got a bunch of features on it if people want to look at it. Uh, while the focus is the death penalty, uh, the things that we're talking about today having to do with misinformation and disinformation um, are also topics that uh, get dealt with uh, uh, in uh, the historical fiction novel that I wrote uh, couple years back so take a look at it yeah absolutely people should very important book let's get into our topic today disinformation and misinformation and and how it's so pervasive in our culture and you know one of the things i want to be very careful about and i try to remind uh myself this though alone the listener that um it's very important not to romanticize the past, like the past was really good at this in the past, you know, we, we, we've, we've lost something today, et cetera. Truth is, is that this information and misinformation has been a problem for as long as, as you know, really cultures and uh, societies have existed. You know, you know, as a, as a professor in this area, uh, yellow journalism is pretty old, and yellow journalism was full of both business information and disinformation, you know, and that, you know, you're talking centuries ago. And so it's not new. But what is new is the, uh, how ubiquitous it is, how uh, often for every one true story, it seems like we're getting many, many more that are not true. You know, and then you got, and I think it's important for the listeners, though, and I'm going to let you clarify this, uh, the differences be- between disinformation information. Uh, one, obviously, is much more intentional. Uh, I think it's important for the listener to know that. Uh, but the consequences can both can, both can be uh, horrific, either one, whether it's misinformation or disinformation. So talk a little bit about that. Create some nuance for us, if you will. Well, let's start out with me agreeing with you once again. Uh, this is episode 29, and I think someday we're going to find something to have a big, big fight over. Kevin, but this isn't one of them. Uh, 
You're absolutely right. We've always had misinformation and disinformation. I grew up in a small rural community, and uh, it was called rumors. And uh, when anything would happen in town, which wasn't very often, uh, all of the party line telephones would light up, and everybody would be telling everybody stories, and uh, most of it had very little connection to the truth. And that's the role of uh, of the news media is to provide us with a, a factual, accurate version of uh, of uh, what's going on in the world. And uh, the the distinction between misinformation and disinformation has to do with intent. Sometimes we're just misinformed, and we repeat something in good faith, thinking that it was true, and it's not. Uh, and that's problematic. Um, but then there's the more malicious use of disinformation, which is you're lying, you know you're lying, and you're doing it to manipulate somebody, and there's an awful lot of that going on as well. And uh, it, what, what's changed is that the ability to, you know, tell rumors uh, and pass along misinformation and disinformation has been substantially amplified by social media, and I think that's that's the big change. Uh, it's not like it got invented by social media, but social media has made it kind of... Uh, Global phenomena, you know, bad news, false news travels at the speed of light, and it's very hard to correct the damage once it's done. Yeah, I think that's true. There's no question about it. And in some ways, misinformation is uh, um, it can be worse in a way, uh, consequentially wise, right? Because if there is a certain amount of sincerity involved in it, it's not like the person uh, has an axe to grind or a hidden agenda. Uh, and so it, it often comes across as more persuasive than disinformation, uh, which uh, so much of that is so transparent. Exactly, uh, and and I think that uh, uh, one of the things that that that, that legacy journalism uh, attempted to do, and not perfectly. I mean, this is the human enterprise, and uh, the gatekeepers that uh, newspapers and television stations and radio stations and magazines didn't do a perfect job. But all of the professional journalists that I've met in my my career, which is a gazillion by now. Uh, every single one of them was trying to do their best to get it right. And um, and what happens when we let everybody become a publisher uh, on uh, social media is that folks don't have anywhere near that same kind of orientation. And uh, a lot of them will bring what we call uh, confirmation bias. They'll pick a piece of information that kind of fits their worldview uh, and uh you're not going to check it very closely because you already agree with it. So that gets passed on to everybody that's in your little network of uh, contact on whichever social media platform you're on. And it creates this little echo chamber where everybody agrees with everybody else, everybody's sharing the same false information. And it's very, very hard to break through with accurate information because they've already established that we're in the know and all of these other people are out to up to no good, uh, and there's no reason to entertain uh, uh, information that runs counter to our beliefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no question about it. There's uh, uh, a huge, uh, a huge problem with that. Talk a little bit about 
the fact that uh, I guess you you kind of nailed it, frankly, in your summary. The social media hasn't invented it. What they've done is they've kind of put it on steroids, disinformation, disinformation. That's a a great way to describe it. Yeah, rumors on steroids is a great way to describe social media. And uh, when when, uh, uh, the Federal Communication Commission was trying to encourage the growth of this infant industry uh, back in the 1990s. They added Section 230 to uh, the FCC uh, regulations that, in essence, said that uh, social media is like a telephone, and uh, and so you're not responsible for the content. So if a bank robber contacts another bank robber by phone to organize a bank robbery, uh, that's not the telephone company's responsibility, and they have no liability. Um, unfortunately, uh, social media isn't like the telephone. It, in fact, aggregates through its algorithms. It aggregates people with a common point of view, puts them all together, and facilitates their uh, communication with each other. And in that respect, they have a responsibility for um, uh, what happens next because they are doing more than just providing a connection between A and B. They're creating this uh, 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 digital community of people with uh, shared values. And uh, there um, are some legitimate areas where I think you and I agree that there are limits on free speech. You can't libel people, uh, which means telling a falsehood about somebody that damages their reputation. And then there's the principle of clear and present danger. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater when there isn't a fire. You cause a panic, people get hurt. So you're, that isn't protected speech. Um, but right now on the uh, on the Internet and social media, um, nobody has any particular responsibility for um, monitoring and dealing with uh, the most egregious forms of uh, violation of, of free speech, which is, libel and uh, uh, clear and present danger. Yeah, absolutely. Talk a little bit about, uh, you know, and, and there, there could be others there. And, and we talked about this, you know, and you're the, you're the Berniak, and I'm the uh, writer senator with a libertarian streak, is how I describe me. Uh, but I, I, for one, uh, believe that uh, the ability to fight People should be become more democratized, if you will. It should be amazing. You know, it's like only rich people's reputations matter because they're the only ones who can really successfully fight a libel suit. <laughs> you know, uh, we need to come up, right. you know, with some means that are in the judicial branch, not in the government regulatory branch. You get government regulating that. I, I guarantee you, you get the government regulating. Uh, you know, appropriate speech, the very first thing that will be protected will be the politicians, you know, and so it's, it can't work that way. But, uh, you know, but, but this is a whole other conversation. They do need to reform it to make it more accessible uh, and not be operating under the assumption that only rich people deserve to protect themselves, uh, you know, when it comes to libel or, or slander. Yeah. Well, the courts have been pretty good at making distinctions between um, uh, uh, you know, public officials and public figures and uh, and just ordinary folks. And uh, uh, actually, it's a lot harder to for a politician to sue you for libel uh, than it is for an ordinary person to do it. Uh, it's a different standard. And uh, I think the, the key thing here is, is that there's no economic incentive for social media 
to uh, to attempt to mitigate things that cause harm to society. Um, and uh, I'm not advocating the abolition of Section 230, but I do think it could be tweaked such that it becomes economically um, useful for the social media platforms to take responsibility for mitigating some of the damage done. Uh, and that can take the form of uh, showing that we uh, show due diligence. In other words, if a piece of uh, disinformation causes harm, it's the equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded theater when you say that, oh, the vaccine, vaccines don't work or, you know, whatever else comes down the pipeline where there's, uh, you know, a, a pandemic issue on the table and somebody is saying something that is counter to the best interests of public health. Um, then there should be some mechanisms where social media can say, well, look, but look what we've done to mitigate that that damage. And I think then that takes off some of the heat uh, uh, off of them because they show due diligence to try to prevent that bad information from getting out there. Um, But the stuff that I've read in terms of the rules for Facebook and some of the other social media sites is that they seem to be following that clear and present danger rule. They basically say, you know, the only time we're going to, you know, shut something down and exercise um, restraint of uh, speech you know, prior to its expression is in situations where it involves uh, an emergency, a healthcare emergency or, uh, you know, a, a disaster of some kind. Also, posting false election dates to, you know, get people to go vote on the wrong Tuesday and stuff like that. Um, there are things that uh, social media can do without restricting um, the opportunities of social media being a platform for everybody to have an opportunity to express themselves. Yeah, I'm talking specifically about uh, people who are attacked by other people in, uh, in a communicative way that others see um, liable or slander, you know, depending on the media that media that's being used. Um, unless you have huge amounts of resources to get an attorney involved, you don't have a whole lot of recourse. Therefore, it's, exactly. it's really yeah. protection for the affluent, not for person. Um, is there preventative stuff that's being done among social media? All the responsible ones. There are some, I would say, Truth Social does as little as possible. That's Trump's, you know, platform. He does as little as possible, uh, you know, to uh, say that they do something. Um, but uh, I, I'm talking about when someone is inappropriately attacked. There's not a lot of recourse for anyone rich, is my point. Um, it, it, there's really not. And so it, it, who, who, where are they coming up with the money for an attorney? Or how are they paying for court costs as they navigate that type of thing? So uh, that's, that's all I mean. I, I, I'd like to figure out if there's a way to do it without undermining our system uh, in general that, that puts – uh, free speech at, at a premium. So what are some other things? You know, obviously the big gist of our series has been that uh, we need to stop hoping that institutions will do for the reader what the reader should be for him or herself. I think that's been a really big, if not the most important thing of our series. And so a lot of this comes back down to Misinformation is going to happen. Disinformation is going to happen. We need to become savvier at reading and consuming news. 
and holding those accountable whenever they do provide misinformation or disinformation, exposing them in your channels that you have available, write them, you know, those, those type of things. But ultimately, this comes right back to what we have said uh, over 29 episodes, right? The burden is on me right. as a consumer of news. Exactly. It goes right back to uh, uh, digital uh, media literacy and the idea that we need to have uh, smart consumers, uh, informed consumers that can basically see uh, when uh, they're being bamboozled by somebody using social media. And uh, we can do what we can do to uh, hold uh, social media platforms responsible for showing due diligence about uh, 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 clear and present danger and libel. And, you know, there's a lot of possibilities there. But in the end, it's got to be the average citizen. The average citizen has just got to be more sophisticated about what they consume and whether to believe it or not. And uh, uh, I don't think that uh, we in education, these are my people, I can badmouth them. I don't think we in education have done enough to... Uh, emphasize the importance of uh, uh, critical thinking as it applies to consuming the news. And uh, if, you know, you shouldn't have to get a graduate degree to, you know, talk about that stuff or study that stuff. I think that belongs in K-12 uh, where people learn that, you know, just because you saw it on the Internet, don't make it so. Uh, and you need to be critical about who is the source and who else can back that up and uh, and all those things that you and I have been talking about over the last 29 episodes. Yeah, and that's why it's really important to look at a lot of different sources. You know, again, Rife Center, Libertarian Straking. I spend every bit as much time with the New York Times and the, uh, and the Washington Post as I do Wall Street Journal and uh, conservative media. I, I, I have to in order to have a nuanced approach. I don't want to be a u- useful idiot for those whom I fundamentally agree with. You know, I want to challenge all of these thoughts, and I don't want to disrespect others uh, because we do disagree philosophically. And, and ironically, uh, what I find, David, is that I read views I disagree with, and I see them done in an intelligent and articulate manner, and I begin to get a sense of where they come from culturally or socially or whatever. Because let's face it, all of that impacts how we right, um, you know, our, our, how, our, how we speak or report, uh, I can go, wow, that person's really smart. I don't agree with 80% of what they said, but I appreciate their intelligence, and, and I can see where from their viewpoint they would come to that view, which makes me a better, makes me a better neighbor, uh, makes me be able to enjoy people that in this culture I'm not allowed to enjoy my, you know, having time with. Um, and so I think it, it's not to mention the fact that I'm, I'm better at understanding what's happening in the news because I've got all of these. They're really like uh, guardrails on a freeway. The more you're reading different perspectives. Couldn't agree more. That's, I, think that, uh, I think that what we're looking at is, uh, uh, you know, very challenging times and, and uh, a lot of uh, – a lot of technology and motion, but I think that uh, the the bottom line is that the security of the democracy rests with the citizens. And uh, if uh, you know you you get 
you get the government that you, you, you get in terms of uh, uh, of a representative democracy like we have. And uh, so it came on us if we don't uh, consume media with a critical eye and 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 do so with a certain amount of due diligence um, because uh, these have consequences. What we know about what's going on in our own country and around the world has consequences in terms of who we vote for and you know how things show up in the polls, which has exerts an influence on politicians. So, for all of those reasons, uh, I think that uh, that uh, the key thing here is uh, 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 digital media literacy and uh, enabling as many Americans as we possibly can to 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 read things critically and uh, listen to things critically and to view things critically. Uh, uh, and, and form your own point of view, and you know, be aware of the, that uh, confirmation bias, which just means when somebody says something we already agree with, we're more than happy to take it as truth. If they say something that uh, we disagree with, we're uh, less likely to process it, uh, less likely to change our minds. It's uh, it's a lot of work to change our minds, so um, we got to watch out for confirmation bias, and that's why where your points about reading media across the political spectrum is so important because uh, it does allow you to uh, develop a sophisticated understanding of other points of view. Yeah, and then not to mention every once in a while you get surprised by a good idea with people or people you don't agree with. It's like, well, I haven't thought of that. That happens, uh, but that can only happen if I'm willing to look at those uh, different perspectives. I know you've become a fan of Reason uh, Magazine, as we talked about before, which is right. very libertarian. It's almost like the opposite of me. It's, it's very libertarian with a uh, pragmatic streak. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's very real-world libertarian pie in the sky, which I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of that. You know, uh, But that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't been reading, reading Reason. And, uh, I know my exposure to the Post and the Times uh, always makes uh, me go, huh, this is interesting. You know, and so, but that's not happening unless I am reading that, unless I'm watching it or reading it, or, wherever I get my media. I mostly get my media from. But uh, again, you need a lot of perspectives uh, out there. Do you want to mention my, my diet? Uh, you know, we talk about this every once in a while. Uh, if you look at like the old nutrition uh, pyramid that they would have, uh, heavily in my news pyramid is uh, on the bottom is Associated Press. And the reason why is that uh, not because of philosophical reasons, but because of economic reasons. Their clients include everything from the Wall Street Journal to Washington Post to MSNBC, you name it, they're all over the place, their clients are. That forces them to be more objective. And that's kind of like the foundation. Afford to be overly biased. They can't really afford to be biased. They can't help but be biased, right? Because we've got cultural and other influences. Uh, you won't find a pro Russia story these days in the Associated Press because of economics. That's about as close to objectivity right. I can get, and it's, it really is based on facts. You cannot afford to even uh, a little uh, go beyond facts. And it, it's, a, a, to me, to me, a crucial part of my uh, diet, and I'm assuming it's big, uh, big with you as well. I think that uh, I think you're right that the the wire service has certainly provide a uh, uh, as objective a perspective as you can get for the simple economic reason is they sell their 
their products to uh, uh, outlets across the political spectrum. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, in fairness to journalists, uh, they're human beings. And, yes, they make mistakes, but they are uh, very much dedicated to the idea of getting it as close to the truth as they can get it. Uh, and there's a lot of other people. You know, I taught public relations for a couple of three decades, and uh, uh, people in PR aren't necessarily motivated the same way. They want a favorable story about their organization, and they'll spend a lot of resources to get it. Uh, and it's yeah. the job of the journalist to resist that um, that easy story that's being, you know, dropped in your lap in the form of a news release or interviews with the CEO or whatever. Uh, you know, you go after the hard stories, go after the ones that uh, the PR folks don't want you to cover, because a lot of times that's that's what your uh, listeners and viewers and readers uh, need to know. Yeah, that's a good note to end. Always love talking to you, man, and it always feels like it's been a long time since we've talked. We've been doing this now for, what did you say, uh, two and a half years almost. Wow, that's incredible. And uh, I hope we continue to do them. It's a highlight of my uh, broadcasting uh, time each month. Make sure you can learn more about David, his website again, davidgozerbooks.com, correct? I'm sorry, I missed the last one. So uh, your book, your website, rather, DavidDozerBooks.com. That's correct. Yeah, very good. Yeah, we got, we got a little weather in here. Apparently, it's affecting us a little bit. Uh, make sure you check it. And, of course, PriceOfBusiness.com will have a link to this interview. And uh, we always have information about David at, at the interview page that we'll have here today. Thanks so much, as always, my friend. It's been great. Absolutely. David Dozer, I'm, that's David Dozer. I'm Kevin Price. This is The Price of Business.